Welcome back to There Are Three of Me. I'm Gabrielle Lawson, Philippe de Lamatroc, and Ina Quario. Those are my pen names. And we've been reading Philippe's first story. It's a Star Trek Enterprise story called Alien Us. And we have 18 chapter, nope, sorry, 17 chapters under our belts, and we're ready for chapter 18. So without ado, let's get to it. Before we get into the story, I have to let you know, um, as I did in the author's note online, that there are footnotes in this story. And obviously, I can't leave footnotes in an audio file. Just can't figure out how to do that. There are uh, several references to things written by other people, some of which you may recognize and some of which you may not. One of them is by a contributing author who goes by Exploded Pen, and that's going to be a story between about Malcolm and his little sister Madeline. Um, there's going to be some from The Lord of the Rings, and there's going to be some from a book that's a Star Trek book, actually, and it's a really good one. It's called Star Trek Enterprise Last Full Measure by Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangles. And it is a brilliant story. I don't follow it exactly, but very close to exactly. So uh, this comes up in um, Finding Home as well. It's, it's brilliant. And I'll be paraphrasing these two stories from this book in this chapter. And I will read the footnotes when we get down to them at the end. I won't be able to, you know, they've got, I've got little hashtag marks in the text online, the first one having one hashtag, the second one having two hashtags and three hashtags and on, but I can't do, you know, saying hashtag or hashtag hashtag in this text when I read the chapter is gonna be kind of weird. So I'll just read the chapter and then I will read the footnotes at the end. Okay, I think that'll work. All right, let's get to the story. Star Trek Enterprise, Alien Us, by Philippe de Lamatroc, with contributing author Exploded Pen. Chapter 18. Dr. Kaifa has said it could take months or even years to recreate the communications device. Still, it bothered Major Jenna when he gave it thought. The aliens hadn't used it, and yet that they hadn't destroyed it in the explosion. The analysis of the crash had confirmed his theory of it. The two aliens had survived, and they blew up the spaceship with a third alien inside. The DNA from the bone chip did not match either of the two surviving aliens. They obviously destroyed the ship to keep its technology from them. But why leave the communications device intact? It was more advanced than anything on Sharu. It alone could spark a technological revolution if Ejiren ever decided to make it public. So why not destroy it? to call for help or reinforcements. They had to have sent at least one message between surviving the crash and burying the device, and that was why he had traveled to Corthitra, the capital of Sowana province, to the Audiotronics Institute. The wingets there studied anything that made sound. They had records dating back to 70 years of radio waves, transmissions, seismic activity. Maybe they could have detected that one call or others made by the aliens. Dr. Suro, the director of the facility, met him at the door. Major, so good to see you. Jenna hated false pleasantries. He'd never met this man before, and he didn't keep friends with wingeds. Have you found anything abnormal? he asked, getting right to the point. Suro's head bobbed. Indeed we have. He led Jenna to a laboratory on the third floor and motioned for another winged to join them in the office in the back. This is Dr. Benras. He found a low-frequency radio pulse during the time frame you gave in the vicinity of Rihansu. Doctor? Jenna looked to Benras as he flipped open a folder. We found several instances of a pulse pattern. That's what struck us as odd. We might have taken this for simple, naturally occurring sounds, except for the pattern. What pattern? Jenna asked, intrigued by the idea of a pattern. Perhaps that linguist back in Kinesitai would finally have something to do. Three short pulses followed by three longer pulses and completed with three short pulses again, and they occurred at fairly regular intervals. 
it would appear that there was someone in Rihansu transmitting a coded message. Suro spoke again. If you'd like, we could send the data to Jira. The cryptologist there could perhaps make something of it. How? Jenna wondered. They wouldn't know the language behind it. Buftanis had used that method back in the war 50 years ago. They used a tribe of Karatans and their rare dying language to pass messages Jiren was unable to decode. By now, Jiren had that solved. There wasn't a single Karatan tribe left without an operative embedded to learn their language. They didn't, however, have any operatives wherever the aliens came from. No thank you, he said, holding out a hand for the folder of notes. We have a linguist looking into it back in Kinesitai. He has clearance. No one else does. I'll want all recordings of this sealed and sent to Kinesitai as well. Understood? Dr. Suro dipped his head. Of course, Major. Dr. Benres, please prepare the recordings. Benres handed Jenna the folder and left the office. If you'll give me the linguist's name, Suro was saying, I'll be sure everything is sent to him. Jenna headed for the door. Send it to me. I'll make sure he gets it. I'm not sure I can keep this up. Malcolm's voice sounded tired, which meant his thoughts were tired, weaker. I remember survival training. Ten percent of fluid loss can be fatal. This time they may not be able to keep me going. Hochi didn't like the sound of that, but it was nearly three days since they had stopped giving him water. Smeagol's secret offerings had probably let Malcolm go a little longer than he might have, but it wouldn't be enough. What are your symptoms? There wasn't an answer for a few minutes, and she began to worry. Malcolm? Hoshi? Hoshi sighed in relief. I'm sorry. It's hard to keep focus. My head hurts so much, and I'm so tired I can't even stand. Say the word, Malcolm, she told him. One word won't get them very far, and it's not worth your life. I couldn't do this without you. The doors opened, and Hoshi wished for another Sifami. She could use a day off, though she knew she'd get more than one week, one in a week or two. She didn't want any in the lab. She'd be happy with just one here in the barracks. But the bugs wouldn't take a day off, so she knew she and the girls would be working. Malcolm, did you hear me? I tried, he replied. My voice won't work. You have to try, Malcolm. She meant it. She couldn't do this if he wasn't there. She couldn't face a lifetime of slavery and experimentation alone. She needed him. She loved him. Malcolm couldn't find enough moisture to swallow, let alone talk. The orcs hadn't thought this through properly. The incessant beeping of his bracelet pounded in his head, driving the pain higher. Hoshi was right. He had to stop this. He couldn't die and leave her here alone. He gathered up all his energy and leaned toward the foot of the bed he'd been sitting under. His arms weren't reliable when he placed his hands on the floor. They tingled and wobbled unsteadily. His legs didn't want to hold him either, but he kept them moving and crawled toward the camera. He didn't make it and collapsed in a heap just after he'd cleared the bed. He tried to get back up, but it was no use. He'd have to try it from where he was. He took a deep breath and tried to make his vocal cords work. All he got was a whisper that sounded more like a cough. He tried again, and his whisper sounded a little more like the word water. He was nearly panting and couldn't catch his breath for another try. He couldn't even scoot back under the bed to escape the bright red lights of the heat lamps. Thankfully, someone suddenly turned those off. The door burst open and Malcolm's gaze was fixed on the water bottles carried by Saruman. Smeagol was with him as well as another scientist, but Malcolm couldn't remember if he'd named that one. They sat him up and pushed a bottle to his lips. He gulped down the water. When he was done with the first bottle, they lifted him up and deposited him on the bed. The sheets smelled fresh, though he, didn't, he hadn't noticed anyone changing them. They checked him over fully while Smeagol washed his legs and arms with a cool, wet cloth. His dirty tunic was lifted off his shoulders, and a clean one was placed over his head. He could barely lift his arms to get them in the holes that served to make sleeves of it. Then they gave him the second bottle, though this one tasted more like a sports drink than water. 
He drank it quickly and laid down. This one's over, Hoshi. Or should I say Frodo in case I accidentally say something out loud again? Frodo's fine. Feeling better? Clean and sated, though still a bit woozy. For once, I'm happy to see these guys. They're even putting in an IV. Must be worse than I thought. Madeline told me about the time you went on bread and water for days. You think those kinds of survival experiments you did helped your, your stamina for this? Perhaps. Did I ever tell you about my great-great-great-great-uncle on my mother's side? He paused to think that through. Did he have enough greats? Hoshi laughed. Until these last few months, you'd hardly told me anything. Who was he? A naval officer? Malcolm nearly smiled externally. He still felt weak, but he was happy suddenly. My mother sighed, he reminded her. Actually, he was in the British Special Forces. Until he retired and had a reality show on television. Your great-uncle was a reality TV star? Four greats, he corrected, and yes. His name was Bear Grylls. The show was about surviving in the wild. He'd be prepped by experts and then taken to inhospitable locales with a film crew. He'd show the audience how to survive and find their way out. He'd eat spiders or lizards or anything edible and jump into frozen lakes just to show you the right way to get out and not die. He'd even drink his own urine when he had to. He'd probably be disappointed I didn't go that far. Well, he didn't have Smeagol sneaking him water. Was his name really Bear? Malcolm chuckled very slightly. Yeah, maybe Bomb's side of the family were hippies once. Hoshi, Frodo, I think I'm going to nap for a bit. Go ahead, Sam. You need it. I'll still be here when you wake up. In fact, he napped for two days and Hoshi missed him in that time. She tried not to worry and take it as a sign of, of the worst that he was dead. She didn't want to be alone here, and she didn't want Malcolm Reed erased from existence. She wanted him in her life, whether here, separated by continents, or sitting across the bridge from each other and rocking in, or rocking in the porch swing on her sister's porch in Seattle. She concluded she might be able to live without him in those other settings, but not here. There was nothing for her here without him, only misery and fear. She distracted herself with Pippa, trying to see if she could teach her one native friend how to count or do simple math. Pippa would repeat numbers after her, but could not say them on her own. They came for her just after lunch on the second day. Malcolm, she tried, as they dragged her toward the laboratory building. She didn't fight them. They could easily just pick her up and carry her, or stun her. She looked back to where Pippa was and noted a dark line on the horizon just above the waist-high crops. It might mean rain. She hoped so. It would save Pippa and the others some work. The orcs carted her through the door and up the stairs and down the hall. They zapped her just on the other side of the door and she went limp. Hoshi? You have impeccable timing, Lieutenant. She, she was so relieved she might have let out a sigh if she wasn't completely immobile and limp as a wet noodle. I've been deposited in the lab. Oh, I guess I shall have to tell you a story then. Give me a funny one. I've missed you so much I might tear up. Then that would then what would the wizards think? I think I'm all out of funny ones. Surely not. She really hoped he'd find one. Or maybe she had to help him. Well, tell me about Madeline. I always wanted to grow up with a younger brother or sister. No. You don't, he replied too quickly. She would have smiled. Oh, more trouble than they're worth. I seriously doubt that. I was one, remember? But he did have her intrigued and thoroughly distracted, so she played along. What about sibling love, a lifetime friend? Malcolm snorted. All lies, probably created by those without siblings, or worse, those who are younger sisters. They are the root of all suffering, the spawn of all evil, present company accepted, and the master of the why argument. Hoshi laughed. Well, only in a way she could he, he could hear or imagine. Her face never moved. My sister is a prime example. How exactly? I've spoken to her. She seemed lovely.
She's not your younger sister. He stalled for a moment, struggling to find a memory to prove his point. He never could tell jokes, so funny stories were not his forte. Stories were not his forte. But he'd managed up to now with near-forgotten memories. Hoshi needed a distraction. Sounding like a moron was a relatively small price to pay to provide it. And that thought brought a nice little memory to the fore. And here's a prime example of just how irritating my sister is, was. He took a deep breath, pulling that, the memory from its hiding place in the recesses of his brain. One day, and really this happened more than once, but just for the sake of the example. One day, I was sitting at the computer, minding my own business, when I suddenly sprouted a new head right on my left shoulder. Malcolm, she said, and then nothing, until I finally gave in with a sigh and asked, What? What are you doing? He asked, mimicking her voice perfectly in his thoughts. In fact, it wasn't his voice at all. Medical experimentation, I said, hoping by my tone she'd go away. Of course, I had no idea of our present predicament. I was 15. Excused, Hoshi said, and you did her voice very well. Well, it is a memory. She didn't go away. She leaned in closer, pushing me forward in the chair until she could see the screen better. Medical experiments. Mom will go mad if you get blood on the computer which, of course, was preposterous. I tried not to stare at her like she was a complete moron, difficult though it was. I'd gotten it for that once before. Maddie, I had to tell her, I was being sarcastic. She'd get all indignant and ask the most infuriating question ever invented. Why? I said, because you're asking stupid questions. I was really getting angry. She knew all the right buttons to push with me. I figured it had to be some sort of scheme or union. Sisters against older brothers. Then Maddie shoved her hands onto her hips. I swear if she'd been 25 years older at the time and with, and with some sort of cleaning supply in her hands, she'd have been the splitting image of our mother. And she said what all younger sisters of older brothers say. I am not. And like any older brother, I'd have to respond. You are too. I'm so not, she said, but I managed not to fall for it a second time. Good Lord, I'm not getting into an argument with you. I was much too mature for that kind of babyish debate. Sadly, she wasn't. Why? He could hear her choke on a bit of laughter, and he struggled to keep his own smile purely mental. He wouldn't move his face physically to give the orcs any clue what was happening. Because, I said... I left it at that and turned back to the computer in another attempt to ignore her. It didn't work. That's not an answer. I replied through clenched teeth. It is now. To which she said, Why? Hoshi supplied. Exactly. I clenched my teeth again and probably my fists. I swear to God, but she cut me off. You're not allowed to swear. Mom said so. Malcolm mimicked, being sure to get the sing-song voice Madeline loved to use in those situations. I told her I wasn't swearing, it was a figure of speech, but she called me a liar and it went on like that for another hour until I finally stormed out. Only when I returned, I found Maddie still there playing games on the computer. Now she let out a good laugh. Oh, it does sound like you had a terrible time of it. Then he sighed, thinking of his pestering little sister, who even at twelve could know when he needed distracting. He missed her. Actually, I was closer to Maddie than anyone else, especially after, well, I wasn't Daddy's little sailor anymore, if you get my meaning. More like Faramir with Denethor, before the burning pyre, I mean. Do not throw your life away rashly or in bitterness, she recited. You will be needed here, and for other things than war. Your father loves you, Faramir, and will remember it ere the end. That was Gandalf, he corrected, not Denethor. I was more thinking of, but if I should return, think better of me, and that depends on the manner of your return. That was when Faramir's heart finally broke, she said, matching the sadness of the book at that part. When was yours, Malcolm? And he told her. He told her about Victor Renslow and the two other bullies trying to force a younger boy to eat a worm behind the gardener's cottage at Evington Academy.
He told her how he fought his own fear to face them, swinging a rake to make them get off that younger boy. Then he told how they threw a rock and hit him in the head and then pummeled him until he couldn't tell up from down and fathom why they were dragging him or where. It was the water that clarified it. They held him under the water of a fountain until his lungs burned and the water tricked him. It made him think that it was the air he held that was suffocating him. So he let it out to breathe again, and he drowned. A passing teacher rescued and revived him, but Malcolm was never the same. His tie to the, his father's acceptance was severed. He could never be a sailor again. By the time he finished his story, Hoshi was deposited back in her little room off the lab. A few minutes later, she could move, and she felt the wet tears around her eyes. That day, April 11th, 2136 was the day Malcolm became a stranger to his own family and an enigma to everyone else. It marked the deepest part of Malcolm's heart, and she hurt for him, and she loved him for letting her know it. Kenu's finally not bored all day, Beju told his friend at breakfast, and it means the aliens must have had a communications device in the desert. Now, I'm guessing it's somewhere in the lab. I might know where, Kari replied. Eshna and Dairon have shifts at the northwest wing. Major Jenna has it secured. Only he and a Dr. Kaifa have access. Kaifa? Beju asked. I don't know a Kaifa there. Exactly. I'll bet he has the device. I wonder what it looks like. I've never seen alien technology. It may not do much, Beju admitted. All Kenu got was a pattern of pulses. Short, 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 long, 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 short, short, short. Some sort of code. That ought to keep Dr. Kenu busy, Kare said, laughing. He's a linguist, right? Not a cryptographer. Beju so wanted to really share his thoughts with his friend, but depending how far he went with this, Beju was not going to implicate Kare in what he was doing, what he was risking. Beju remembered the tapping the aliens did when they were in separate rooms. They were using that same code, though not the same pattern. They were communicating to each other all along. And if Kenu or any of the others figured that out, they might get a step closer to communicating with the alien, and that would not be good for the alien. Dr. Burhas said he'll have the quotas out in a couple weeks, he said, changing the subject back to something less dangerous. That perked Kare up. Really? Anyway, you could get a peek just to see if I'm on the list? Beju laughed and downed the rest of his water. I don't have to look. You're a cold raptor, Kare. I'm telling you, you'd have to do something egregious to be taken off the list. I used to fantasize blowing up the school with those three in it, Malcolm admitted. I thought it was the NI3, Hoshi replied. She was still in the lab, and she figured she'd be there through her period. That was the how, he said, not the why. Well, did you ever see a counselor about this? You were a kid who went through a traumatizing attack. You needed counseling. My father didn't see it that way. His voice was quieter now, sadder. Except for my parents, I've never told anybody until now. In that case, she thought to him, I'm impressed. You had every right to become a psychopathic terrorist bomber. He smiled. She could tell somehow. Well, I still fantasize about blowing things up. The laboratory, for example. But I try to channel it into productive endeavors. Exactly. There was more. But I'm sure you didn't wake up the next day deciding to be a productive citizen and explosives expert. No, I plotted my revenge. I got some not-so-bright at older students, big brutish types, to like me by doing their homework for them. And two years to the day of my drowning, I got it. I had my boys take the leader of those bullies for a joyride to the pier. I was there waiting, and they beat him for me. Hoshi, Hoshi gasped. She tried to equate what she was hearing to the Malcolm Reed she knew and loved, but it didn't add up. I even joined in, he added, and got a few licks in. Then, when he was a bloody mess who couldn't even hold his head up, I told them to toss him over the pier. He pleaded with me then. He said he couldn't swim. And I told him, neither can I, not anymore. And I'll tell you, Hoshi, I reveled in it. His tone hadn't changed. Still quiet, still somewhat sad. I made him beg me. 
I had that power. Then I saw my reflection in his tear-filled eyes. I'd become him. Right there I changed. Hoshi smiled now into the one man on Enterprise who would stand up to the captain when he tortured a prisoner for information about the Zendi. What did you do with the bully? I told my bullies to take him to the hospital. I decided to join Starfleet that night. Space just seemed so far away from where I was, and I didn't want to be there anymore. Malcolm, why didn't your parents press charges? You knew who attacked you. And didn't your, why didn't your father want you to get help? Her door opened and food and water were set inside by one of the orcs. She waited until the door was closed before she went for the food. I don't know. I was very scared and confused at the time. He didn't discuss charges with me. As for help, I'm a reed, and reed men don't let circumstances get the better of them. They pick themselves up and get going again. She heard Stuart Reed's voice there at the end. Like your uncle on the Clement? What about your mother? My mother does what father says when father's home, and he was home then and only too happy to bring up the Clement when I tried to tell him why I couldn't get in the boat anymore. Hoshi knew this was the heart of who Malcolm was, his drowning, his revenge, his redemption, and his father's disapproval. She meant it when she said she was impressed. He had managed to grow into a confident and competent man and officer in spite of receiving no counseling after the attack and no support from his family pretty much ever since. But it also made her sad for him. She wanted to hug that young boy who had been drowned and tell him that everything would be okay. He was wrong, Malcolm, she said instead. About all of it. You came out remarkably well, but you needed counseling. And it's even more understandable that you're aquaphobic since you didn't get any. And it doesn't make you any less of a man because you can't be in the Navy. You are a good man and a Starfleet officer with a distinguished career. And if he can't see that, then he's the one with the problem. I know, Malcolm said sadly. But he's still my father. I want him to be proud of me. I want to be Boromir. I'm stuck with Faramir. Faramir was the better man of the two, Malcolm. Someone's coming, he said, changing the subject. It's Meagle. Major Jenna opened the door to Dr. Kaifa's lab. Thus far, few knew of this lab or what was going on in it. The guards at the door made sure of that. Dr. Kaifa was at his table with a device, tapping it slowly in the pattern they'd found at Corthitra. What do you make of it, he asked. It's been a week. Kaifa gave a short laugh. A week without any frame of reference? You don't need a scientist, Major. You need a miracle worker. Jenna sat down and sighed. I wish I had one. The aliens have been here half a year, and we still can't say why they've come or ask them the simplest question. What do they call their kind? What do they call themselves? If we can't even ask that, how are we supposed to learn anything? Science can take time, Major. Kaifa said. He stopped tapping and set the device down. You just have to be patient and let the little breakthroughs help you stay positive until the big ones come. Jenna looked up. You have a little one? Yes. He held up the device. I know how they did it, and I know it's not the default method of communication for this device. How do you know? Because I could only recreate the pattern by interrupting the carrier wave. The carrier wave exists when I turn the device on. The tapping he said as he demonstrated it, interrupts it. Jenna stood up. But if you replicated the pattern, you had to hear it. You found a way to receive the signal from this device. That one's too big, Kaifa replied, waving a ha his hand that Jenna should sit again. I have a smaller breakthrough. I can detect the signal. It's more a matter of seeing it than hearing it. He got up and went to one of the computers on the bench behind him. He pointed to a monitor display of a simple line. Then he turned the device on. The line became wavy. He tapped in the pattern and the line straightened with each pulse. I can only say the signal is there. I can't say what it carries. Enish pulled up the camera's view of the female's womb and was happy to see both blastocysts still intact. I'd have been satisfied if one survived, Vesta said, coming up beside him to look, but two is even better. 
The previous one was gone by this time. Those two are doing nicely thus far. Anish looked more closely, estimating the distance between the two blastuses. Do we have any guesses about the size of the offspring when it's born? Can her womb hold two embryos successfully? Well, Vesta replied, what do our most similar mammals do when they are pregnant? Do their bellies distend to provide room for the fetus? Is it born large or small? Anish thought about that. The Ekanon, as he knew it in Jiren, gave birth to infants much smaller than the adult size would have one think. An adult could stand nearly three meters high, while a newborn was barely ten centimeters. If the female was similar, the blastocysts would have plenty of room to develop into embryos that would produce male aliens genetically similar to the one he'd had to leave behind. But there was a lot of difference between Ekanon and these aliens. It depends how similar they are. We don't know this one's gestation period or the growth rate of the embryos yet. She's only similar in a few characteristics. She's a whole new species. Okay, now for those footnotes. So the story about Madeline and Malcolm on the computer, that story was contributed by Exploded Pen as Sibling Joy and adapted by me to fit this story. Quote from The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, Hofflin Mifflin Company, 1994. For the first quote, that's uh, what Hoshi recited, page 799, and then what Malcolm recited, page 798. As told much better, oh, and then the part where she told, he told about, well, she's thinking about when he told about the drowning that I wrote, as told much better in the novel Last Full Measure by Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangles, Pocket Books, 2006, New York, pages 146 through 150. And then later, the revenge story, same, pages 150 through 154. Okay, let's get into the summary and get it done quick. We start with Jenna, and he's starting to think they had to have used that device between the the that they found out in the desert that Kaifa is working on. They had to use it between blowing up the ship and burying it in the desert. So he goes to another city, Corthitra, to the capital of Sowana province, to the Audiotronics Institute, and there he is. He gets a they have they had detected the pattern of SOS, and he picked that happened at, at several intervals, regular intervals, out in the Rihansu Desert in the time frame that he asked about, and so he asked that the files uh, and the papers, the papers and the recordings are returned back to Kinesitai, and so that can uh, Doctor Kenu can work on them, as well as Doctor Kaifa, Kenu can work on the code. Um, and then we have Hoshi, who is beginning to worry about Malcolm because he's sounding a little fuzzy, sounding so tired, even in his thoughts. And she says that she, he's probably going to have to say the word and it can't hurt all that much now. It's the same word he's already said. So he, but he's worried out that his voice really won't work anymore. Then we move to Malcolm's point of view, and he does do it. He does get out and croak out water, and they do rush in and give him water and a sports drink-like thing, which is the electrolytic, you know, uh, drink. And they wash his limbs with a, cl a cloth, with a, with a cool cloth, and they even change his shifts, and he, he's able to then go to sleep. And he tells Hoshi, he does talk to her, and <laughs> A little funny bit there that I threw in is um, I used to watch these shows with Bear, Bear Grylls on uh, reality TV, and he has this lovely British accent. And I thought, what if he, I make him Malcolm Reed's great, 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 great uncle on his mother's side? <laughs> I thought it fit really well. And so I threw that in there. And then um, we go over to Hoshi's point of view, who points out that he actually slept for two whole days. And he comes back just in time as she's being taken into the lab. And she wants a funny story. And um, so she asks about Madeline. And he kind of gives her this thing that younger sisters are so much of a pest, etc. 
And um, he kind of tells her this funny story where they were on the computer and that um, Madeline just kept pestering and pestering and pestering and pestering and incessantly till he finally gave in and left. And um, and then he, he thinks out that, you know, Madeline really was the person he was closest to in his family. And even during that time, she knew when he needed distracting and she distracted him. She was she was the one who who kept you know did support him and but he mentions that his father you know actually he does tell Hoshi that um and he mentions being more like Faramir with Denethor and Hoshi quotes the 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 beautiful thing that Gandalf says to Faramir before he goes on the suicide mission do not throw your life away rashly or in bitterness you will be needed here and for other things than war. Your father loves you, Faramir, and will remember it ere the end. It's beautiful. Because Faramir's heart is breaking. And why is Faramir's heart breaking? Well, Malcolm says the thing that came before that, where he's standing in front of Denethor, and Denethor orders him on this mission that Faramir knows is suicide. And he says, But if I should return, think better of me. And his father says, that depends on the manner of your return, which is just heartless. I remember reading that and my heart just broke for Faramir. And the way, <laughs> the way I saw the movies, I saw the first full order, the, uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, like four times, got the book of the whole three, all three, you know, the whole trilogy in one book. And I started reading. I eventually saw The Fellowship of the Ring like seven times. I saw The Two Towers like nine times. I saw The, uh, the Return of the King quite a few times too in the theaters. Of course, I have the DVDs and then I got the extended editions. And I kept both because they have different special features. So I have both the theatrical editions and the extended editions. Another interesting thing, I won a Two Towers prize pack. And I actually won the, the extended edition of the Two Towers, plus a Balrog playset, a t-shirt, and this really cool bag. I still have the t-shirt and the bag and the, the Two Towers extended edition set. Oh, and a baseball cap. I still have the baseball cap as well. All right. Um, but he he does that. And Hoshi says that's that was when Faramir's heart finally broke. And she asked when Malcolm's was. And then we go to her point of view, and she relates that he did tell her. And he told her this story from The Last Full Measure. And it is just a gorgeous, gorgeous story. And it, to me, it fits so perfectly with how Malcolm became aquaphobic. I know in the show it said something like, he's been there you know bad that way as long as he can remember something like that and he's always tried to you know, they thought he'd outgrow it and i like what they put in this book so much better than that it is absolutely gorgeous you see malcolm's 12 year old bravery and trying to get these bullies off of this young boy and he does that but they throw a rock and they hit him in the head and then they beat him up and they drag him to a fountain and they help hold him under. And it says his cheeks bul bulging as he struggled. Malcolm felt as if his lungs were on fire, felt his blood hot beneath his skin. He opened his eyes and saw moss covered concrete deeper in the water. He struggled further and as his vision became hazy again, felt the absurd, absurd sensation that the air that remained in his lungs was what was actually suffocating him. He pushed it out in a steady stream of bubbles and gulped to breathe again. But there was no oxygen beneath the surface of the old fountain to the southwest rear acreage of Evington Academy. And so Malcolm Reed began to drown. And that's where the scene ends, right there. And it's just, wow. Yeah, if he actually drowned in this traumatic way, you could kind of see how he could become aquaphobic. And then the next scene starts exactly two years later in um, the same place. And we find out that there was no justice. It says, Mistress Linscott, who had, unbeknownst to the other faculty, been carrying on a torrid affair with Master Taupin, the greensman, who had been coming to and had been coming to call on the man who was her secret shame, when she had discovered the trio of youths bullying Malcolm Reed near the fountain. Luckily, she had paid attention in her health class two decades prior, 
and thus was able to use cardiopulmonary resuscitation to bring young Malcolm Reed back from the brink of death. But Morris Bishop and Balanswheel, the three bullies, had escaped the grasp of the law and permanent expulsion owing mainly to Emily Lynn Scott's nearsighted inability to positively, positively identify Malcolm's tormentors and to the wealth and influence of the families of all three boys. A new surface to the sports field and a set of padded chairs for the staff lounges had, brought, had bought the churlish trio much forgiveness from all save those they had harassed over the years. Still, the teachers now watched the three boys with hawk-like acuity, and the three offenders were not allowed to take any classes together. But that is, you know, it says, but their punishment, such as this was, provided scant comfort to Malcolm. And I like his scheming for revenge as well. There's a, um, there's a story, I know I'm supposed to be doing the summary, but I'm kind of breaking right here because of these two, I mean, yeah, the summary, but, um, because of these two stories, there's a story that I've bookmarked um, on AO3. Is I read it a long time ago, and it is hilarious. Called "And Light Years to Go Before I Sleep" by Deb, and it, the summary says it's not just a trip to Jupiter Station; it's an adventure. And the premise is that Malcolm has uh, is going back to Earth to defend his doctoral thesis in engineering. Um, and his thesis is about that force field that he perfected and, you know, one of the, that episode with the uh, telepathic uh, thing, webby thing in the, in the cargo bay. Um, it might be Vox Sola, but I can't remember if that's the name of it. Anyway, it's a funny story. It's not that long. It's under 3,000 words. And <laughs> you get a sense of the deviousness of Malcolm Reed in, in that story and it's it's just it's just hilarious it really is funny and then there is these two stories that are summaried I mean uh, not summary two stories that are linked but I've only bookmarked one of them one's called The Bunny um, by Iron Irian it's hard to pronounce that E-I-R-E-A-N-N and in that trip, without Malcolm's knowing, bumps into him on Easter and attaches a bunny tail to the back of him, and he never know he doesn't know. And the 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 story I bookmarked is the bunny bites back, and it again is absolutely hilarious, and it's Malcolm getting revenge for that. <laughs> Boy, does he! And it, it's it's elaborate, it's devious, and it's just perfect. Um, so these stories, I love those stories about how Malcolm Reed can use that tactical expertise of him, of his to be so devious. And I love that they put it into this book in that he, first off, think he's a, he's a child with some psychological issues here because this PTSD and he doesn't feel safe at that academy. So what does he do? He finds his own bullies. And he does, you know, he's a small kid, so he gets these bigger kids and he does their homework for them to make them loyal. And so he wouldn't exactly call them friends, but they were at least loyal to him for as long as he continued to help them academically. And they were all larger than he was, some significantly so, and a good deal rowdier as well. So two years to the day, he sets up a plan and the boys take Leslie Morris, who was the leader, out for a joyride in Leicester's Dockside District. They bring him to the darkened pier area, ostensibly to partake of some Irish whiskey that they had pilfered from their parents' liquor cabinets. And then, very much to the young bully's surprise, they had descended upon Leslie like a pack of wild animals. And Malcolm gets a few licks in, in there, and when he, he pulls up Leslie's head by his hair because Leslie couldn't lift his head by then so he pulls it up and he well he tells him to throw him off the pier and he says but I can't swim please don't and Malcolm says neither can I not anymore and he thoroughly intended to have him thrown over the pier and he would have drowned just like he drowned Malcolm right but he sees in his eyes and I do want to read that part because that is the difference that turns him into the Malcolm we know and love 
who did stand up to the to the captain about torturing that Zindi guy. He was going to push him over the side of the pier, the boy who had almost killed him out of sheer brutal pleasure. And then, despite the pier's dim lighting in the moonless night, Malcolm saw his own reflection in the wet, terrified eyes of Leslie Morris. In that incident, he knew that he was no better than the object of his hatred and resentment, and that his actions were only serving to perpetuate a vicious, ugly cycle, the Ouroboros serpent swallowing its own tail. He exhaled heavily, throwing his head back as the anger and violence and rage poured out of him into the cloud dark, cloudless skies above him. He saw a light in those skies far away, a, a star or a starship orbiting high above. Better than this. Better than us. He turned to one of the, of the thugs. Take him to the hospital, he said firmly, ignoring their surprised stares. He's been hurt enough. As they dragged their hapless victim away, Malcolm Reed sat alone on the edge of the pier. He listened to the night-enfolded waters of the river soar as they lapped with a gentle rhythm against the pilings and boats. Staring out across the river's gray, fog-shrouded expanse, he could sense the water's desire to embrace him once again, felt its overwhelming need to consume him. But above him, dominating the river and the sea into which it flowed, spread openness and infinity, air, and beyond that, space, limitless, limitless possibility, and maybe even redemption. So those are two flashback scenes Malcolm's thinking in this book. And they're just powerful, absolutely powerful stories. And so I take them as my head canon and thus put them in this story. And they're actually told in much further detail, still paraphrasing, in the sequel than they are, well, maybe not the revenge one, but the other one, the drowning is definitely, um, in the sequel than I did here because Hoshi just kind of summarizes what Malcolm told her and then he tells her the revenge story. All right, continuing the summary, we go back to Beiju and Kare at breakfast and he mentions Kenu not being bored because he's got these pulses and there's a communication device somewhere in the lab and Kare kind of gets an idea where it is because of two other guards who work there and, you know, the guards talk to each other. And that Major Jenna has it secured and only a Dr. Kaifa and he have access and Beiju doesn't know of a Dr. Kaifa there. That's how secret it's been. But he doesn't want to tell Kare everything about the pulses. He does do, you know, tell him it's short, 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 long, 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 short, 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 some sort of code. But he does realize he's put the two and two together of the tapping they did back in when they had separate rooms tapping on the walls. They were using that code. And so they were communicating all along, and they didn't even know it. He does not pass that information on to Bishte and the rest. All right, then Malcolm tells the revenge story to Hoshi. And um, she is kind of horrified at part of it, but then impressed again because he managed to, to come through redemption right there at the end, you know, in the same revenge story, he figures it out that it's a vicious cycle and that he became, become the bully. And he figured that out and stopped it. And he became the kind of man who would stand up even against the captain who was torturing a guy to get information on the Zendi who had just killed 7 million people. But that doesn't make torture right. It doesn't. It's still wrong, and it turns us into the evil people the Zendi think we are. So he actually speaks up. And I do believe he protested attacking that one ship to steal their warp core or whatever so that they wouldn't have, they would have, take three years to get home from the expanse so that Enterprise could continue on. But Archer says attack them, and they do. And Malcolm does speak obey orders under protest to blow out their engines to, you know, or just to, to stop them. And it's just Malcolm is, it's like Malcolm's the, and well, Trip is all like angry because his sister died in that attack and he's all, let's kill the Zindi, let's kill the Zindi. Malcolm is like the only one who spoke up. Torture doesn't work. 
It gets you what you want to hear, not necessarily the truth. And it proves to the one being tortured that you are evil. You are the enemy and you are evil. So if the Zindi attacked Earth because someone told them that Earth was going to kill all of them, archers looking like what they think they are. And fortunately, by the end of the season, they do kind of start working with some of the species of the Zindi to stop the weapon. And they do put an end to the sphere builders' uh, designs by getting rid of the spheres so that the, the expanse is not the expanse anymore. It's the, it's the sphere builders that were telling the Zindi that Earth was going to do that. And so they do, you know, stop the weapon, but... Archer did go a long way toward breaking all the principles that the Federation eventually will have. What Starfleet had, what would have been good guy principles, he broke them for revenge. And to save Earth, he'd say, you know, he'd break those principles to save the planet. But if you'd risk everything that you, you believe in to fight for what you believe in, if you give up everything you believe in to do it, in the end, is it worth it? And so Malcolm is really an anti-torture guy. He really is. And they bring it out in this story. And because of this thing that happened on the pier, that's what makes him that guy. So it's, it's all those things Hoshi realizes that make him the, the heart of who he is, the drowning, the revenge, the redemption, and his father's disapproval. Okay, moving on. Um, Jenna goes to Kaifa's lab. This is a bit later. Um, not too much later, but, you know, it's not right there, right, you know, like a minute after or anything. And... Okay, they've had a week of trying to work on the pulses, and Kaifa has found a way to see it. Not so much to hear it, but he has a monitor that when he turns on the device, he can see the wiggly lines of some signal being out there, but he doesn't still know what it is. But when he taps the message, he realizes it goes solid. So what is happening is the tapping interrupts the subspace channel but he doesn't know it's subspace. So he doesn't know what it's transmitting, but it, it, that, he doesn't know what the carrier wave is, but the tapping interrupts it. And then we get a very short uh, scene with Enesh and Basta, where we find out that Hoshi was not in the lab for her period. She was in the lab to be, have two blastocysts installed in her uterus. And they kind of discuss, you know, can she, you know, if both of these survive, can she carry two in her womb? How do they know? You know, we know women can carry twins, but they don't know that. They don't know what size the offspring would be when it's born. You know, is it tiny like a panda's baby or is it bigger? You know, we they don't know. They have no reference. And she's a whole new species, of course. And then we had the footnotes at the end. Well, I hope I've intrigued you to check out the book, The Last Full Measure. It is a story that takes place during season three. The um, see if I can find the note that says that in the book when it takes place. Yeah, the main events in this book take place during the summer of 2153 between the Enterprise's discovery of a Zindi who was working in the mining complex. The Zindi is the episode. And before the ship is stopped cold by a spatial anomaly and is boarded by pirates, episode Anomaly. And it was the Zindi from the mining complex who Archer tortured in an airlock that Malcolm stood up for. So it's a good book to place uh, these two scenes in. And it's a good story. And those uh, scenes are kind of right in the middle of the book. And so I highly recommend them. It's quite good. And I will say Exploding Pen has some pretty good stories out there on um, AO3 and fanfiction.net as well. All right. And I've also plugged uh, some stories by Irian and Deb. Um, and they were 
Let me go back to my bookmarks. The Bunny and the Bunny Bites Back by Irene. And, and Light Years to Go Before I Sleep by Deb. They're both, they're all three quite funny. Um, so you will definitely laugh. And let, let me just plug one other, just because it surprised me um, that you could put Star Trek and the Lord of the Rings together and come up with something funny. And I even am impressed that I never found one single typo in the whole story. It's Star Trek TOS, the original series. And um, I gotta find it. And um, the Lord of the Rings, and it's called This Citadel Ain't Big Enough for the Two of Us by That Sassy Captain. And That Sassy Captain is all one word. Or, and the sum summary is, or how transporters do as they are want to do, and Leonard McCoy isn't at all happy about it. It is hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. Um, I wouldn't have thought you could put those two together, but he pulled it off, and it is, it is so funny. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll wreck that one as well. All right. That's it for tonight. Um, oh, I kind of did the, I did the commentary kind of in the middle of the summary. So I, I had to include those two stories from Last Full Measure because they are my head canon for how Malcolm became aquaphobic. I think they beautifully illustrate that. And I, I, it is in, it's in my head canon now. And for those of you who don't know, what is head canon? Canon is what the powers that be decided is. So for Star Trek, it's the TV shows and the movies. Those are canon. The novels are not. The novels aren't canon. Um, although, I don't know how the powers that be feel about the Star Trek novels after the end of the series because they do kind of retcon the whole trip died thing. So in that sense, I like the books better, but I'm not sure kind of like I like the direction they went with it but they made it have a thing about Trip uh, faking his death. Which is better than what they showed on TV. So, um, yeah. Well, headcanon is when you decide in your own mind that you will accept something that isn't canon as your personal canon for that fandom. So... My head canon for Malcolm Reed becoming aquaphobic is that. Um, and then there's other things that have become my head canon. Um, I like the deviousness of Malcolm in In Light Years to Go Before I Sleep, but I didn't make that head my head canon. Um, there is a story about Bucky that I made head canon. Um, the Torture and Rescue of Prometheus by Elite, Elliot Rosewater. And it, the summary is, before they were, they were Captain America's Howling Commandos, they were just a bunch of guys in a cell together. The Howlers as POWs and immediately after the rescue. It's a great story of the escape from the prison uh, slash factory and the travel to the SSR base. And it is pretty much my headcanon for that. It informed a lot of my headcanon about that time. We see that Bucky kind of is coming out of this. He's getting stronger and stronger as they are in the um, factory as they're trying to get out. But we don't see him past the railing when um, Captain America jumps over to it. it. It comes all the fire. It doesn't even show that Captain America made it out. And then they're marching into the camp. So we don't see the time between those things. And I think in my head canon, like this story that he gets sick. He get he he lets out. I I I think his adrenaline was keeping him going. And then once he's safe, that adrenaline lets go, and he's not well. They did horrible experiments on him in that base, and he can't just be fine after that. In fact, when you see him as he's walking in the SSR camp, he's got dark. There's something dark in his ears. It's dried blood. Dried blood in Bucky's ears. It's in the movie. He was bleeding from his ears. That is not well, <laughs> you know, that is not doing well. So that kind of went into my head. It informed my head canon. So my head canon is not maybe exactly like that, but it is a lot like that. Okay. So that's what head canon is. Um, so 
that's enough for tonight, I guess. We've got, uh, whew, we're almost to chapter 20, and when we get to chapter 20, there's only 10 chapters left. Wow. <laughs> we're almost there. It's like the story's almost over. No, not quite. We're maybe what? Are we close to, are we two-thirds yet? Not quite. I guess when we get to 20, we're two-thirds, right? So we have two more chapters to be done with chapter 20. Anyway, I'd love to hear from you. You can tweet me at inhildi, I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I, or email me at inhildi at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. If you like Enterprise, go out and read those other stories I told you about. They're great. There's a lot of other ones that are quite good as well. And if you like if you like the Lord of the Rings and Star Trek, really try that that one about the Citadel ain't big enough for the two. You know, that is just, it, you'll love it. You will love it. Okay? Um, and do pick up, if you like Enterprise, that book last full measure it is it is good and i i keep those two scene book scenes bookmarked at all times <laughs> that's how it is for me all right well see you tomorrow for chapter 19